Hi, my name's Tanya. My family and I go to the 9am service. I'm reading from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Hi everyone, my name is John Thorpe. Thank you for joining us today. It's great to have you with us. Let me pray as we get into this passage. Dear Lord, we thank you that you created us, that you gather us together as your people and you speak to us through your word. Help me now to reflect on your word faithfully that we might grow together in love and obedience. Amen. I want you to imagine that you are in charge of appointing my position in the church. What would you look for? Uh, now, to make it a, a little bit easier, I've put together a list of five things. But how would you order those five things uh, from one to five, from most important down to least important? So here they are. Character, skill and experience, inspires confidence, personal behaviour and Christian conviction. If it's helpful, I can provide some background music. Do, 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 do. Okay, hopefully you've put something together. In many respects, it's an unfair question because a leader needs to have all of these things. And yet at the same time, it's not black and white. So it's not like we have them or don't have them. We all have our strengths and weaknesses and everything in between. But even so, I think there's a temptation to gravitate towards skill and experience and ability to inspire and sometimes at the expense of those other things like godly conviction and character and behaviour. And I think we gravitate to those things because we feel that they will have the greatest impact, uh, even the greatest gospel impact. 
Uh, But as we will see from our passage today, uh, conviction and character and behaviour aren't just important for us personally, but they also shape how we lead and where we lead. As we get into this passage today, we get a, a glimpse into how God wants to structure his church. But it's hardly an organisational chart. And so where we have specific instructions, uh, then we need to submit to those instructions and we can use those instructions, instructions to shape how we do things. But beyond that, we've got freedom. And so we need to be consistent with what the Bible has to say but then structure things in a way that will work best for our particular context. And we know what God wants for us as a church because he tells us in his word, and we read it last week. So he says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This isn't just about God creating a safe society where Christians can live out their faith. This is about creating a safe society where the gospel can be proclaimed so that more and more people can hear the good news of Jesus and turn and believe and be saved. And the primary means of God growing his people is through teaching and proclaiming his word, and in particular in the context of the church. And so we should make the most of every opportunity. You know, when we're talking to people and friends and family, we have opportunities like beach mission and chaplaincy and Christian surfers and all those other wonderful opportunities. But we also have an opportunity each week as we gather together, as we do what we're doing right now. So Paul is describing himself as a leader and a teacher, and unsurprisingly, he wants to encourage others to step up into those roles so that the gospel might continue to go out into the world. But it can't just be anyone who is a leader and a teacher because they have a disproportionate influence. So leaders have the capacity to do incredible good, uh, but equally, leaders have the capacity to do incredible harm. And so today, as we start with Paul instructing Timothy, he's talking about who Timothy should appoint as a leader and as a deacon in the church. And he says, here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. As Timothy reads these words, he completely understands what Paul is talking about when he's talking about the role of overseers. Uh, But for us, it's a little less obvious. Uh, We know that Paul describes the leadership in Ephesus using language of elder and overseer. And so, for example, in Acts 20, we read, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And then a few verses later, he says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So there is some interchangeability between the words overseer and elder and shepherd. And we also know from later in this letter that only some of the elders had a teaching role. And so in 1 Timothy 5 it says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Finally, we know that synagogues had elders 
and then synagogue leaders. And out of the synagogue leaders, there was one person who was appointed as the synagogue leader. And so, for example, we have Jairus who comes to Jesus with his uh, dying daughter, and he's described as a synagogue leader, uh, but also the synagogue leader. And so it looks like the church adopted a similar structure. Uh, So putting it all together, uh, there were a group of elders. Uh, Elders and overseers might be describing the same role, uh, or overseer might be describing elders who also had a teaching role. There might have been one overseer in the church, there might have been multiple overseers in the church, and one person was probably put in charge as the overseer. Uh, Whatever the specific structure, uh, overseer is describing the most senior role in terms of teaching and leadership in the church. And Paul is saying whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. As we saw last week, there's a lot going on in the Ephesian church. There seems to be a particular issue with men and anger and disputing. Uh, There are women who are causing all sorts of conflict by the way they dress, so they're competing and comparing and vying for influence. And then there were women refusing to submit to the leadership of the church or to the roles that God had uniquely given men and women in the church. And behind all of this, we have false teachers who are stirring the pot and trying to teach that you need Jesus, but you also need the Old Testament. So they're bringing up all sorts of myths and genealogies that potentially lead people astray. And in that sort of environment, it might be tempting to think, well, who in the world would want to be an overseer? But Paul is probably also concerned for those good and godly people who should step up into the role, but are perhaps hesitant out of a sense of godliness and humility. Because there is no doubt that leadership has the power to corrupt. And Paul warns against that in this passage when he talks about overseers and says, Uh, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. But that doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't pursue leadership, and it's unfair to presume that those who do are motivated by self-interest. And so Paul is writing these words to encourage those who are willing to take up the responsibility to say, what you are doing is good and noble and worthy of respect. So being an overseer is a noble task, but not everyone should seek to be an overseer. And as we look at this role of overseer, uh, what we see very quickly is there's a lot in this list that have to do with character and reputation, but a lot less emphasis on skill. And as we look at this list, I think what we can do is, is cluster some of these ideas together. So let's start by looking at that theme of skill. So here's the list. Uh, from our verses about what it is to be an overseer. Out of that list, pick the ones that have to do with skill. I suspect most people would have identified ability to teach. But I think there's another one that we often overlook. Uh, it's a little more subtle. It's kind of the where's Wally of the, of the skill list in this passage. But I think we see it in verses 4 and 5. But let me particularly look at verse 5. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So the where's Wally word in this verse, in my opinion, is that word manage. So managing the family is about reputation, 
but it's also about skill. As we saw last week, we can't separate teaching and authority. The two go hand in hand. But at the same time, I think it's unhelpful if we only think of authority in terms of teaching because there is so much more to leadership. So leaders also need to inspire and motivate others. They need to provide direction so that the whole body of Christ might work together. As a church, we don't want to be an octopus without a brain where we've got all the limbs doing their own thing, but no sense of how we work together as one body and as a one whole church. Those responsibilities can be shared and delegated. And for us as a church, in our system, we have wardens and parish council uh, that help with uh, clarity and transparency and accountability. But at the end of the day, whatever structure we use, we need to have leadership and overseers are called to lead. But even more significantly, overseers are called to be able to teach. And so out of those two skills, the one that's emphasised infinitely more than one over the other is this role of teaching. Because our salvation depends on responding to a message. And so we've got to get that message right. So we need teachers who are going to say and you know point people to the Bible where it says, For God so loved the world. But even that message is not enough. That's certainly an affirming message. Uh, but we also need to hear that we need to repent and believe. Because with only half the message, we only get half the picture. And that means we have this sort of false sense of security where we feel like we're standing on safe ground when in fact we're not. So an overseer needs to be willing and able to teach, but they also need to be able to teach what is going to be good and popular, what people want to hear, but also at times what we don't want to hear. But all of that is going to mean nothing if we don't live up to our words. And so verse 2, the overseer is to be above reproach. Above reproach starts with good character. So good character is about the underlying values that shape our behaviour. So in our passage, it's words like temperate and self-control. Our character is partly shaped simply by who we are. So some people are naturally generous. They were generous with their teddy bear when they were two, and they're generous with their car, now they're 25. But the same person might be naturally jealous or naturally angry. So character isn't simple. We're complicated, messy people. And part of that is because our nature is corrupted by sin. But our character is also shaped by our environment, and in particular those formative years of our childhood. And that means as parents we have a huge responsibility in how we shape and form the character of our children. And so to pick up the words of Proverbs, start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not easily turn from it. Now, I appreciate when it comes to parenting, most of us don't feel we have that much influence of our, on, over our children. Uh, we don't feel we're particularly influencing the state of their bedroom uh, or their capacity to put away uh, the milk. Uh, but in reality, in human terms, as parents, we still have the most influential role 
in shaping our children. So we need to live up to that role and honour the role that God has given us. And so let me ask some awkward questions of myself, but also uh, to you. Uh, How is your character and your behaviour influencing the character and behaviour of your children? Or an even more difficult question, if we ask your children, what would they say about how your behaviour is influencing them? How do they see us? Do they see us as temperate and gentle? Uh, Men, fathers, uh, do they see us as leading our family in a manner worthy of respect? Uh, Thankfully, nature and nurture aren't the only influences shaping our character. Because as we are in Christ as Christians, we also have the Holy Spirit. And so picking up Paul's language in his letter to the Galatians, this is how he describes the role of the Holy Spirit. He says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know, often we wish that God would perfect all of those things in the present, uh, but we know that that is still a future reality, uh, that we are a work in progress. Uh, but even when we fall short of those things, even when we get out of step with the Spirit, we know that we are still loved, uh, that when we repent, uh, we can be forgiven. And so when we fail, we need to get up and keep going. And I hope as you look back over your life, if you've been a Christian for a short time or a long time, that you can see how that Holy Spirit is working and shaping you and shaping your character to be more of the person that God wants you to be. So overseers need to be people of good character and character is seen in our behaviour. So if a person is self-controlled and temperate, They won't be a drunkard or violent or quarrelsome. Uh, They will be faithful to their wife. Uh, These are all behaviours that build relationships. Uh, It doesn't mean that we choose leaders who never disagree or challenge or rebuke, but we choose leaders who can do those things from a position of self-control and in a way that builds relationships rather from a position of anger and frustration. And leaders who are motivated by desire for godliness will mean that that will impact their behaviour, but it'll also impact what they want and seek for those around them. So let me acknowledge uh, one thing that I need to constantly work on. You know, I'm naturally a pretty task-oriented person. Uh, which means I can be so busy looking at the end that I can lose uh, a sense of perspective of the detail. And so for me, I need to stop and slow down and spend time with people and and listen. And so for me, this is one of those ongoing challenges. It's one of the things I pray for, and that's one of the things that I will continue to need to grow in in my leadership. Uh, So we've all got things uh, where we're a work in progress. Uh, So we have skill and character and behaviour, and all of those things are going to contribute to our reputation. So verse 7, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. 
People see our behaviour and our behaviour either improves our reputation or it undermines our reputation. It's particularly tragic when our behaviour undermines our reputation in the community because that creates a real obstacle to people hearing the gospel. Uh, so when a minister is unfaithful to his wife or if people perceive him to be motivated by money and they see him show off a lot of wealth, then that doesn't just reflect on the minister, it reflects on everything the minister has to say. And so people look at that and they think, well, why should I listen to him? In fact, why should I listen to any minister? Now, it doesn't change the reality that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sin and that we need to repent and believe. But that message gets lost in that behaviour. You know, people look at that and they say, well, if he doesn't believe what he's saying and if he doesn't live what he's saying, then why should I? And so our role as a minister can either have an incredible impact for good or incredible impact for harm. And so pray for our leaders. You know, pray for me, pray for Pete, for Elliot and Murray and for everyone in our church who's in a leadership role. Because we do have a great opportunity, but with that also a great responsibility. The second half of our passage now focuses on deacons. And so the word deacon simply means servant. Uh, and again, we don't really know that much about deacons. We don't know what they did from day to day. Uh, the title tells us that they worked under overseers. And Acts 6 perhaps gives us at least some insight into the role, although it never uses the word deacon. So let's read from Acts 6. It says, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from amongst you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. So the word deacon isn't used in this passage and Acts 6 isn't written to be prescriptive, uh, but it does give us at least some idea of what that role might have looked like. And what stands out in both of these passages is an emphasis on godliness and character. So continuing in verse 9, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, it's kind of interesting, we don't read that expectation of overseers, but I think it's implied in the language of being able to teach. Um, but I think it's included specifically here for deacons because even though they don't have the same authority or the same role, they are still in a position of influence. Uh, people are still looking to them as an example of godliness. And so there's a real emphasis in not just being able to do the job, but being people who others can look up to, who others can imitate. And so it's important that we don't just pick capable people, but people of conviction and people of character. So choose wisely who we appoint as deacons. So verse 10, they must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Now, in our context, we call assistant ministers deacons, or at least we used to, uh, but we do apply that principle of teaching to everyone in leadership. Uh, so when we choose people to lead, we're looking for people who do have a godly conviction and character. Uh, and then we lay before them uh, the expectations of the role and how that we expect them to continue to grow in their personal godliness as well as their commitment to the ministry. 
Uh, we also see uh, in verse 11 that the role of deacon is for both men and women. And so it says, in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. It is possible this verse is talking about the wives of the deacons, and certainly we want to encourage our wives as well as husbands to be worthy of respect and not malicious talkers and trustworthy. But I think more likely, in the context of this passage, he's talking about women who are deacons, and that would certainly be consistent with what we read in Romans 16, where uh, we hear about Phoebe, who's a deacon in the Roman church. In our passage last week, Paul taught that God has put men in a unique role to lead the church. He says it to affirm the unique roles of men and women generally, but he also says it because he wants uh, men and women to work together to complement one another rather than compete. And so we see this role of women as deacons as that complementary role to men. So in our church context, uh, that can include uh, women teaching other women. It can include women meeting uh, one-to-one uh, to read the Bible and pray or just looking out for opportunities to serve and love one another practically. Uh, some of those roles will be in teams. Some of those roles will simply be uh, taking up personal opportunities. Uh, but whatever role uh, our women have in our church, I hope you feel that you are respected and valued for what you bring to our life together. You are respected and valued, but I hope you feel it. And I would love for us as a church to get to the position where we can employ a woman on staff specifically to serve and support and disciple women in our church, but also women in our community. This passage is about choosing overseers and deacons. So it's tempting to feel it doesn't perhaps have a lot to do with each of us personally. Uh, But it does have some significant implications. So let me draw out just a few. So the first one is uh, choose leaders wisely. Uh, Don't just choose people who are skilled and experienced and able to inspire. Uh, Choose people who have godly conviction and godly character and who have a godly reputation. Uh, Secondly, we need uh, for each of us to consider what are the gifts that God has given us. And if you have been given a gift of leadership, then don't simply let that go. And certainly don't let it go just out of a sense of humility. Uh, If we've been given gifts, then we should use those gifts. In fact, we have a responsibility to use those gifts in a way that honours God uh, and for his glory. Uh, Lastly, Paul is describing what God wants for leaders in his church because this is what God wants for all of his people. Uh, So not everyone is called to teach and not everyone is able to lead and manage, but we are all called to be people of godly conviction and godly character. And so our leaders should be an example, but actually it's for all of us. So let me put this passage up again one more time. And as you look at all of these sort of attributes of what it is to be a godly leader, but also a godly person, what's one that you can work on over this week and next week in terms of growing in your godly conviction? Uh, Choose one uh, and then pray about it. Pray that God through his spirit might shape and mould you to be the person that he has called you to be. 
So let me close and pray for that for us. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us, that through your Son you would choose to give us life, uh, to call us into your family and to gather us together as your church. Lord, I pray for all of our leaders uh, that we might grow in our love for you, uh, that we might be godly examples, that we might teach your word faithfully. And Lord, I pray for each of us that we might grow in godliness and character, that we might grow in our love for you. And as we look at this list, help us to see uh, where you want us to work in particular, uh, that we might honour you with our whole life. Amen.